This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 192. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I am joined by Mr. Jake Jackson of Tier 3 Tactical. How you doing, sir? Doing awesome. Nice to be here, Riley. Great. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's really great to have you on. I appreciate you being so responsive. You know, I read this article of yours, 11 research-based concealed carry tips from criminal video analysis uh, last week sometime. It was shared on a, on a Facebook group or page somewhere. And uh, I was like, I have got to get this guy on the podcast to talk about this and anything else he wants to talk about uh, because there's some really key lessons here that I think concealed carriers need to hear. And there's things in here I think are going to, you know, bust some folks' bubbles as far as, yeah. you know, have some assumptions about how self-defense shootings and things like that go down. Um, you you did some research, and the, that's the point here is a lot of this is backed by data, and that data being that we have real-world video that you've gone through and analyzed, looked for patterns and commonalities, and the result is this article and it's fantastic. So I commend you, sir. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, though, folks, uh, today we have, uh, as our sponsors of this, of this episode, number one, Pig Lube. I've got a, one of their mini cleaning kits right here in front of me. Good stuff here. A fantastic little compact cleaning kit. Uh, definitely would like to encourage you to check out Pig Lube. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash pig lube to check that, that product out. Here's some of the the lube right here as well. Uh, this is the scented variety. So if you like bacon, you're going to love this stuff. I love bacon. They also have the unscented variety as well. And then also our other sponsor of today's episode is Guardian Nation. So you can go to guardiannation.com and learn more about Guardian Nation and what it offers uh, in terms of training, online videos, great content, huge discounts on products, in the quarterly boxes that we send out each quarter to our members. So check it out, guardiannation.com to learn more, find out how to join today. And so, oh, and then also I have a little honorary, honorary mention for Phoenix Weaponry. Uh, these guys are great. Um, they're actually local. Let's see if I can get my finger in the right spot here. They're actually local here to, to our area here. They make some great ARs, custom parts. They've, they've been building me a custom AR upper. I'm really excited to get, it, get my hands on. And we'll be seeing them at SHOT Show next week where we'll be doing uh, some, some video with them and talking with them about their new AR-15 platform style. Uh, it's a 4570 AR. And if you haven't seen that, I think, I think we got to check it out. I, I, I'm just really intrigued. I mean, that's a big old round to fit into an AR platform rifle. So anyway... There you have it. That's our sponsors today. We appreciate you for joining us, whether it's on Facebook or listening and downloading the podcast through the usual means. So with that, let's get into it, Jake. Um, you, uh, like I said, wrote this really fantastic article, 11 Research-Based Concealed Carry Tips from Criminal Video Analysis. We'll, come, we'll get into that article in depth, but I'm curious to learn more about who you are, your background, maybe what prompted you to, to study this or research this. Um, so why don't we start kind of in the beginning. What's, what's your background, Jake? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I guess we're talking uh, background wise, like, you know, grew up in the Midwest and then, uh, you know, went to college and uh, like many folks um, decided that, you know, the office job wasn't really like what I was down for. So I decided maybe I'd give the Marine Corps a shot. Um, went to uh, OCS, I guess almost like 10 years ago this year, um, and then uh, did a uh, did a stint in uh, the Marine Corps as an officer. And then um, I uh, did a lot of training with them. I was actually a, a ground intelligence officer, which um, not very many of those, but basically that means that, you know, I provide uh, intel analysis for battle space commanders and then also uh, depending on the requirements, I might lead a um, infantry platoon or a sniper platoon or something like that. So I've got a lot of training from the Marine Corps. Um, one deployment to Afghanistan in 2012, came back from that and, you know, kind of decided I'd switch gears, um, moved back up to the Northern Virginia area and uh, joined the police department and been working there ever since and uh, really enjoyed. So this this kind of article is really I would say kind of a mixture between um, some of my training and experience as a intel officer, and then then also obviously it kind of fits in uh, pretty well with my my current occupation as a as a patrol officer. Awesome! And how about how long have you been doing uh, patrol patrolling or working in the police? Uh, about three years, I think, in February, my three year mark. Cool. Awesome. That's a, uh, you know, I definitely hope that you are safe out there, brother. Uh, I, th- I think I just saw in the news this morning, there was a U.S. Marshal and a couple others uh, wounded this morning. It's a dangerous world out there. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems to be happening more and more recently, but. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so we definitely keep you in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, I do a little bit of uh, that myself. I'm more of a volunteer or uh, part-time capacity, but I enjoy when I'm able to get out and serve. But definitely am uh, always aware of folks I'm interacting with. Now, I just popped up on the screen. I'm sharing uh, uh, your website here, uh, tier3tactical.com. Tell me a little bit more about Tier 3 Tactical, uh, what you're trying to achieve there, and your, um, what, you'd like to, wh- what you would like folks to know about Tier 3. Sure. Um, I actually started this website about two years ago. Um, I have a lot of, you know, kind of interest. I think most of your folks – your audience probably has, um, you know, enjoy shooting. I've been getting more and more into competitive shooting, but most of my training has been from the tactical side of the house. I'm also a pretty avid uh, fitness guy. I've been doing uh, CrossFit for about 10 years, um, and I coach at a local gym, uh, CrossFit Annandale. Um, so I've been doing that for, I think, three years now. So I like, uh, I like a little bit of both. And honestly, I didn't really see anything on the Internet that kind of um, – put those two things together because to me they they're not separate things you know your your self-defense skills and your fitness and things like that are, are basically you know facets of the same thing they're not uh, completely separate things and I, I figured there's probably other folks that in, uh, felt that way and hence the uh, the website and and the you know it's been going pretty well since since then oh, that's awesome I've been perusing this uh quite a bit over the last week or so. Um, and, and it actually, I didn't remember that I had stumbled upon another article of yours uh, prior to this uh, 11 uh, re- reasons or research-based uh, concealed carry tips. Before I stumbled on that, I think I found, uh, see, I've got it in my saved uh, uh, articles here. 
And this one was the 17 most important gunfight stats backed by data and real world experience. So you've been kind of playing around some, some mm-hmm. similar ideas for a while. And yeah. this is another fantastic article. Maybe we can get into that a little bit too t- today as well, if we have time. Sure. Um, but so tell me a little bit about your inspiration for this 11 research-based concealed carry tips from criminal video analysis. Well, um, I don't know about you, Riley, but I kind of feel like if you spend any amount of time on like Facebook groups or, um, you know, anywhere on the internet, forums, what have you, you'll see a lot of people who kind of spend all this time arguing about, you know, oh, no, you need to carry this type of gun and this caliber and this is the training you need to do. And if you're not doing like a vehicle assault class, you're basically you know, a piece of crap, you know? So it's like, I always feel like all these things that people have these very strong opinions on self-defense, um, but they don't ever really have anything they can point to to say, you know, this is why I think that. And, you know, kind of as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, that kind of a thing, like, you know, it's very easy for, you know, that's that kind of logic just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, to me, I was like, well, let's just see what these engagements look like or a video of these engagements, right? Um, and then we'll just do a real quick analysis. And, you know, even after you watch four or five, you're like, well, I'm starting to see some patterns. And then, so I started to watch a bunch of them, mainly from um, the YouTube channel, Active Self-Protection, which is a really good channel. And uh, John Correa runs that and um, just really great channel for that kind of a thing. So I started to watch them and, you know, notice some commonalities and kind of came up with a framework for like 11 traits that I analyzed these, uh, videos for and then that was kind of the key part that allowed me to really make sense of it and kind of extract some uh, decent statistics that would be useful in, in you know everyone's training for concealed carry because you know as we'll get into what most people think happens and what most people are training for is not really what it's happening yeah that's uh, so you analyze these for 14 traits it says here uh, I'm just going to read these off so so folks listening can can hear what all these different traits are that you were looking at because I'm sure we'll be talking about some of these more specifically. Range and feet between good guy and bad guy. Number of assailants. Obscured draw or hiding the draw from the assailant. Delayed draw or not drawing immediately on recognizing a threat. Number of hands on gun, whether you're shooting two hands or one hand. Grappling, if there's any grappling, any physical contact during or be, I would imagine also maybe before the gunfight. Is that, is that yep. uh, any yeah. touching prior to the uh, engagement with the gun? Yep. And then shooting and moving event time in seconds, assailant direction of attack uh, or, you know, using the clock face method. Uh, so I, the, uh, uh, the person, the, the victim, if you will, or the person defending themselves, their, their sternum is at 12 o'clock, right? Yep. Use of cover. Uh, whether it's a police officer, civilian, or police officer uh, engagement, uh, location type, store, gas, station, etc. Uh, good guy injured, if the good guy sustained any significant injuries, and then overall success. So you rated it on whether the good guy was injured or killed, and if so, uh, you rated that as a failure. Yep. Sounds harsh, but I don't think any of us are practicing self-defense to go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's that's so true. And you know, and we just shared a story on our most recent episode, episode 191, and and I tried to pull these stories out where I can find them because I think it's an important and relevant thing to talk about that hey guys, the reality is uh 
you can't perfectly prepare for every every fight out there. Um, the reality is that you might not come out of that in, in you know whole or intact or without losing some blood yourself. Um, or perhaps even losing your life. I mean, there's no guarantee. You know, the, the, this gun that you carry is, I've said it many times and I'll say it again, is not a magic uh, yeah. rabbit's foot, you know. So uh, it doesn't automatically put a shield or a barrier around you and keep you protected from any, any anything bad happening to you. And so uh, these traits, I think, are really awesome, uh, Jake. And, and I'm curious, how did you put all this together? Um, you know, a lot of it just kind of, honestly, a lot of this is basically, uh, the same kind of, when I do analysis for these kind of things, cause I do a ton of other articles that do similar things, but not always for, um, you know, obviously gunfight statistics and things like that. But basically, you know, you got to look at the data first, you look at just whatever you've got. And then once you've kind of gotten a feel of like, Hey, this is kind of how this generally goes. You can start to see trends. And like one of the first ones I saw um, that really kind of jumped out at me is like, you know, you see a million people on Instagram and tons of people on YouTube, like with their appendix carry rigs, like doing really fast draw and like banging some steel looks great and super fast. And it's hard to do it well, but guess what? Not one video did that ever happen. Like that doesn't matter. Like the ability to draw really quick, of course, is important. I'm not going to say like you shouldn't be able to do that, but at no point did somebody go, there's a target, one second draw, headshot. Like that doesn't work that way. So that's just like the first thing that kind of led me down the rabbit hole. Like, well, how far away are they? Well, are they always using two hands? And, you know, it kind of goes on to that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's fast, fascinating. And, and like I said, really, really good stuff, man. I was super impressed when I even read all these different traits. Uh, some of these things, I don't know if I would have necessarily thought of myself uh, if I was trying to do exactly the same thing. For instance, um, I, I don't know if I would have actually personally included, you know, this grappling category in there. I don't, I don't know if I would have thought to, to rate that, you know, what, was there any sort of physical contact before or during uh, the gunfight? Um, you know, this, this is, this is really good stuff. So, uh, the cool thing is, is that you've got 30 videos that you analyzed mm-hmm. where you, you, you were able to actually see these events as they transpired. Uh, we're able to then, you know, witness for ourselves, uh, the results of those gunfights. Now, many of these are police officer involved. Yeah. Right. And, and that's honestly kind of one of the bigger limitations because obviously if you're going to be doing a, um, a video analysis, you can only look at situations that have video of them. So you're going to be limited to locations like stores, gas stations, restaurants, malls, whatever that, you know, have got video. And of course, because uh, police officers almost always have a video, at least in their cruiser or in, and now more and more, you know, on their, on their person, that that's going to be something that there's just more of which it doesn't necessarily mean that that's like your average engagement, but that's kind of one of the limitations I point out in the article that you can really only analyze what data is available. You know, if someone's getting into a tussle at a truck stop in the back lot, you know, there's maybe no camera there. And then, you know, we don't really know how that, how that went down. Yeah. Tell me out of these videos that you watched and analyzed, is there any one particular maybe a couple of these videos that really stood out to you, any of these that are well-known events uh, or, or ones that folks might, might typically know or remember? Um, some that I highlighted because obviously I'm not, I, you know, couldn't include all 30 um, in the article, but 
if you go about halfway down the article, the very first one, it's an off-duty officer. I guess the title's off-duty officer towards armed robbery attempt. And it looks like he's in a kind of a normal restaurant. Um, and a couple guys come in and start to, you know, rob the place, go up to the cashier and, um, you know, obviously display a firearm demanding the money. And then they're starting to turn to, um, you know, rob the other occupants there. So, you know, yeah, that's the video there. Um, and so they start to do that. And the, the officer is kind of, you can see him, he's backing up from the assailants. He's playing real cool, but he's definitely, he's reaching for his gun. And then he just kind of calmly produces it and engages, um, you know, the, the assailants. Um, in that case, that's a one-handed engagement, but that is like, I would say it's a very representative kind of successful engagement attempt where, um, you know, he produces it calmly. He's not quickly reaching for it. He realizes what's going on and he kind of initially appears non-threatening. That's the kind of engagement that like is very successful and, and probably is more so what you should be able to train than, um, you know, like you're really awesome appendix draw and 25 yard headshot <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about this particular trait. This, this idea of obscured draw, how important is this from your analysis? I mean, you, you, you state here in the article that in 73% of these engagements, the good guy hid his draw mm-hmm. from the bad guys. This is like one of those common sense things that no one really thinks about uh, until like, you know, if you actually had role played this kind of scenario, you'd do that. You'd be like, if there's someone in my face who's trying to take my money, you wouldn't just be like, well, pull my shirt up, crunch my shirt, pull my gun out. Like that's a thing you can do on the range because nobody's going to shoot back at you or, or stab you or whatever it is. But in this thing, it's like very obvious that like you can't let him know that you're trying to reach for a gun or else he's probably going to do something about it. Um, so that's that's one of the things that really is key. And it's it's pretty common sense. Just most folks don't really think about it much because they haven't taken the time to review a lot of these. And it's also one of the things, um, you know, that I think John himself has said numerous times on his channel. So um, it's it's key. If you there are a few, there were, I think one or two out of the 30 where the guy sees some threat and then immediately reaches for his gun. And that almost always ended in like a 50, 50 gunfight with shots being exchanged. But you know, if you're kind of really what that is, is kind of a counter ambush, you know, they initiated the contact and, and you're kind of waiting for your, your appropriate time to initiate your, your side of the contact. So if you do that, um, it tends to work out pretty well for you. Yeah. It, it, this was quite a telling thing for me. And, you know, as I thought back to all the not as formal research, like what you've done that I've done, uh, you know, so I, what I've done is a lot less formal. I didn't go through and like identify so yeah. many different events and, and analyze these, but just kind of uh, uh, what's the word, you know, just, just kind of going off of feel based on what I, what I've read, what I've studied, what I've shared on the podcast. I was like, yeah, I I suspect this happens quite often. You say here that this is a key predictor of success in any engagement, this Mm -hmm. idea of an obscure draw. And I think that's so true and very key. I was thinking back to, uh, you know, oftentimes on the podcast, I have my co-host, uh, Jacob Paulson. He's the president of concealedcarry.com. We recently in Utah filmed a uh, training course 
And as part of that, we did a, a force on force, you know, uh, demonstration. We just did it with airsoft guns or whatever. Yeah. And in this case, in this instance, I was seated in a vehicle. Uh, we were basically replicating a story that happened in Detroit, if I remember correctly, or Chicago, somewhere, one of those two big, big cities there. Uh, I think it was Detroit. And it was at a gas station. Uh, dude is in his car. He's got a passenger and a man, it's not really clear as to what the motivation was, but he clearly, you know, he, he comes up, he's got a gun in hand. He approaches them on the passenger side of the vehicle, motions at him through the window. Like I said, he's clear that he's got a gun. The driver proceeds to exit the vehicle, uh, draw his weapon and, and exchange shots with the bad guy. And he does succeed in that, in that encounter and that, uh, I believe he strikes the bad guy, uh, almost immediately from the get go though, the bad guy, you know, takes off running. Mm-hmm. Um, and so pretty typical engagement. We've, I've seen, you know, a number of these, but this one was, I thought was very intriguing because one of the passenger in the vehicle, uh, number two, that there was a vehicle involved and it was a situation where this guy couldn't just immediately, you know, get his vehicle out of there because he's parked cars, probably shut off. He's at the gas pump, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of good food for thought in that, in that, in that video, I think, because, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I think this, and this dude probably just reacted. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there was a little bit of thought or, or analysis that he did himself where he's thinking, wait, I've got my passenger. I got to be concerned about them. And by him exiting the vehicle, you know, it, it really took the gunfight away from his passenger, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was, was, I mean, whether it was intentional or not, I thought it was a pretty smart move. Yeah. So Jacob and I ran that same scenario. I'm sitting in the vehicle. He approaches from the passenger side and I go to get out of the vehicle just to play this whole thing out. And in both, we ran it two different times. In both, time, in both cases, I, I basically, you know, eliminated the threat. Um, but what I noticed intuitively about myself, is, and it was not necessarily, I was not planning it ahead of time. Like we, we basically came up with this scenario on the spot. It was like, hey, we should do this force on force thing. Well, what can we do? And then like, hey, let's do this thing that happened in, in Detroit, the gas station. And so we just came up with it. And so... The cool thing there is that I was very much reacting to him coming up. I was like, oh, hey, you know, dude at my window. Oh, he's got a gun. I'll fetch, you know? And, you know, so I just reacted and I get out. And what I noticed in going back and watching the video is that in both cases, I kind of, I basically did what, what we're talking about here. And that is obscuring the draw. Mm-hmm. And I had a very good opportunity to do that because I'm, I've got the vehicle and the vehicles between me and my bad guy. Uh, so I had that opportunity to sort of kind of get out you know, get my gun ready, uh, you know, and I'm not presenting it right out in front of his face. I didn't present it from inside the vehicle or anything like that. I just got out, but behind the vehicle is able to take, you know, some form of cover, produce the, the firearm, shoot him. And, and, it, and it worked in both cases. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, and that's like a thing that with, with a little bit of training, uh, that's what feels natural in that case. That's correct. And, um, you know, going back to, my degree and my degrees in psychology and you do a lot of um, you have to do a little bit of biology in terms of like visual processing because you can't, you know, that's how you learn things and affects your behavior, obviously, but any quick movements is going to, are going to be, you know, noticeable immediately. So it's the same thing in reverse when I'm a police officer, if I see somebody, you know, quickly shove their hand into their pants or reach into a coat pocket or something like that, like alarm bells go off. And criminals are the same way. Every human's the same way. If you're talking to them and all of a sudden I quickly do something, that's going to send off some, you know, some signals and, you know, that's just not a good thing. So it, it makes sense to be as smooth as you can and to kind of, 
obscure what you're doing or at least, uh, you know, distract them in some way if you can while you're producing your weapon. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Let's back up a little bit and let's talk about distance of engagement because sure. this was also very telling too. Mm-hmm. Much so argument on the average... internet for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the average uh, distance? Um, from what I can tell, it looks like it's roughly around nine feet. And that makes sense if you think about it because, you know, a robbery is a human interaction. You have to talk to them. You have to communicate like, hey, give me your stuff. I have a gun. I'm going to compel you to, you know, give me your valuables or whatever. So you have to be able to hear each other. You have to be able to communicate effectively. No one's going to be able to do that at 20 yards, you know. So they're going to be within kind of normal, like whatever you would know. Like if you walked up to someone on the street, you didn't know particularly and you're trying to get their attention, that's the range where it happens. It's not going to be much further because, I mean, it just makes sense. You can't communicate to someone far away and you're not going to get super close either because it's just kind of odd for any human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, clearly in, in, in all these scenarios, you had some that were face-to-face, you know, contact distance. Yep. Yep. You had some that were probably a lot further away, but the mm-hmm. average is nine feet. Yep. And if you were to, um, what would you say percentage-wise? Just I don't know if you know exactly or if you can kind of go off by feel, but about what percentage of all these uh, shootings were three yards or less? So ruling out you know, everything beyond that. I'm going to give you a, a rough estimate. It's going to be around two-thirds, like 70% or so. We're going to be that kind of close range. Um, I'd really, you'd re- you really have to look at more videos to get a, a better number because there's some selection bias and obviously that some of these are, you know, kind of at gas stations and things like that. And that's going to limit just how close or far away you can be. I mean, the aisles are a certain distance and cash yep. registers and counters and things like that. So they're almost always, you know, going to be in that close range distance, like that first video that you showed where the guys um, produced his gun. I mean, that was very close. That was probably three feet or so. Um, because the guy was actually making contact with them, but that's going to be, that's going to be the norm. So, you know, training wise, yeah, you need to be accurate out to further distances, but you have to have, you know, an understanding that most of these things are going to be close range. Yep. What do you, what do you, what does that tell you, uh, as a police officer or just as an avid shooter and concealed carrier, uh, as far as what do I need to be considering for my training based on that statistic alone? I'm just curious. Do you you spend a lot of time uh, being more focused on uh, point shooting, you know, or kinesthetically aligned, whatever that Rob Pincus likes to say, uh, or, I mean, how important are those sites? I'm just curious. Um, You know, there's actually some other research that I think force science did with that. At those kind of close ranges, yeah, I mean, you hear anecdotal evidence and I use that word evidence loosely because just because someone says something doesn't mean it happened or that what they really believe happened did happen. Um, and a lot of times they hear like, oh, I saw my front sight. Like it's some kind of badge of honor. Like that's not the point for any of this stuff. A concealed carry, the point is not to see your sights. The point isn't to use a certain technique. The point is to win. So whatever allows you to do that is okay. So whether you want to call it point shooting or target focus or whatever it is, at that kind of close range, it's probably not going to matter. Force science has kind of indicated that what they did is they gave handguns to um, basically folks that had just graduated police academy and they were considered to be like kind of mid-skill level. 
They gave them to some SWAT officers, obviously high skilled, and people who never held a gun before. And they found that people who never held the gun before, they didn't instruct them how to, they kind of instruct them how to hell, hold it and, you know, what the controls did, but they didn't give them any actual instruction. Right. And at those kind of close ranges, they are just as accurate as someone who spent two weeks at the range going through police training. And, you know, that might say something about the efficacy of police training, but really I think what it gets to is that the ability to point at something at close distances and pull a trigger, you can accept a lot of error. You know what I mean? If, if any of your listeners do any competition shooting, if you've got like a three yard target, you don't need to focus really crisply on the front side target. If you practice, you've got a good index on your gun, the sights are in front of your face. You know, they're lined up enough, pull the trigger. Yep. Yeah. We call those hoser targets for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I remember shooting a stage, a three gun stage once that uh, I shot amazingly fast. This was in my, in my brand new days, of three gun. And uh, I, bl- I blazed through that stage cause it's just a big hoser stage. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was just, you know, it's just three gun and you know, like, yeah, hey, whatever, you know? And I, I ran down the left side or these, these four targets all lined right up about not even th- quite three yards away. And I'm just like, bah, 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 bah. and I came back and everyone's like, holy crap, dude. I'm like, but did I hit them all? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the important I mean, part. I got them. <laughs> they were like two, two yards away, you know, like it didn't require much, you know, I, I didn't have to aim those shots or anything. And it just was kind of funny how everyone reacted when I came back. Cause I just let loose on them, you know, yeah. and there was a couple of D's, you know, but it was a, a match where they didn't really care as long as you had, two hits on a target. Uh, Fun times. So um, here's another really big uh, piece of this too, that uh, I think probably has a a great potential of changing people's uh, bias uh, towards, you know, like we probably all have in our heads if we've been carrying concealed or, you know, practicing or studying self-defense for a long time, we probably have like in our minds, like this ideal picture of what it would look like if I had to draw my gun and use it. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, I, I would bet that in a lot of those scenarios that you might play out in your mind that there's one guy, mm-hmm. you and one guy. Yeah. He's almost always wearing a hoodie and you can't really see his face and it's kind of in a parking lot and that's everybody's scenario basically. <laughs> yep. Yep. So what's, what's the problem with that perfect scenario? Well, you know, you're not taking into account that you, where, what do you, what do you do when you're a person? You go into places. You obviously don't probably hang out in parking lots all day waiting for hoodie guys to show up. <laughs> um, you're, you're probably going in, running errands, going to get some groceries or, you know, get a drink in the morning or whatever it is. Right. So you're, you're in a place and if they, and if you happen to be in the place when it's, you know, going to be robbed, um, there's going to be more than one guy. And oftentimes in this case, it seemed about two thirds of the scenarios um, had two. So two was the most common number of assailants. And this is just because oftentimes you're going to have a guy who's the gunman, whose job is to keep everybody in line. And you have the grab man whose job it is to collect the valuables, get the till, get the cash out of the register, whatever. So two is a good number. Um, but sometimes there are more, I mean, I can tell you from my, um, you know, my other job, uh, we worked a robbery, I don't know, a couple months back. There were five dudes, and several of them are armed with long guns in a, in a gas station. So, um, you know, whether you should fight back in that kind of scenario or not, that's, that's a completely different topic. But, um, you know, 
this one-on-one kind of high noon gunfighter thing. Mm-hmm. It can happen, but you know, I wouldn't really hold my breath on that. Yeah. Yeah. It said here in your article that out of all these scenarios, uh, 30 scenarios, only 11 of them had one assailant. Mm-hmm. So all others have multiple assailants. Uh, I would definitely say that this is so, so representative of many other of the encounters that I study. Uh, in the, now, one thing we do have to recognize, and I think we kind of touched on this in the beginning of the episode here today, but, but I, I just want to clarify it again. Keep in mind that you picked 30 scenarios. Mm-hmm. Many of these are biased towards police shootings. Yeah. There are police, you know, involved officer involved shootings every day in this country. And a lot of those are captured on camera. So we're going to see quite a few of those represented in, in something like this. But, you know, the, the, but, the, but these are convenient scenarios to use because we actually have the video. And so we can look for those commonalities, right? However, what is more common, I think, uh, because of all the stories I scour through the internet each day, it are scenarios that involve regular Joe's citizens. And quite often, I'd say by and large, most of these, uh, you know, DGUs or justified stories are home invasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, every week, I mean, that's that's pretty much what we see is probably about for every three out of every three stories, probably two of them are home invasions. And the other one is, you know, somewhere else. And so like this week alone on uh, the, the earlier episode this week, we had three stories, two were home invasion stories. The other one was a, a workplace incident. Out of those home invasions, they were all multiple assailant situations. Yep. And so when someone, you know, comes to me and says, Hey, you know, like I only need my six shot or five shot. If it's a XDS or something, yeah. a five shot, 45 caliber pistol like five shots it's 45 man like it's a 45 it'll basically that's all you need you just tell them it's 45 and that's good enough yeah yeah that's right run away of course and you know what i mean honestly five five rounds of 45 acp on a single dude in most cases you know assuming everything else goes well it's i'm sure that's adequate you can get the job done in in a lot of cases uh are there exceptions for sure but the problem is is that the most likely deadly force encounter that you are going to experience is a home invasion. Yep. And the problem with that is that I'd say statistically, the, the, a large percentage of those are multiple assailants. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing because if you're breaking in a place to steal stuff, uh, we've all moved furniture, right? We've all moved stuff into a house. Like how much fun is that to move uh, anything you know, by yourself. Like it's better to have a couple people and it's better to have somebody who's looking out for the homeowner, cops, big Rottweilers, whatever. Right. So that's, that's pretty normal. And I think it also gets to the fact that that is probably the scenario where you're least, it's least questionable whether you're justified to use deadly force. You know, if you're in a um, uh, parking lot and the guy just robbed you and he's running away, like, are you justified? Probably not. You'd have to have some, you know, some, be able to articulate that very well to engage a guy running away. So a lot of people aren't going to, um, you know, engage that person. But if they're coming into your house, you know, at night breaking in, like you pretty much know their motivations. You pretty much know that, uh, you know, they're not good folks. And it's, I'm not going to say it's always justified, but it's almost a slam dunk in that kind of a case. Yeah. Now, uh, Cindy here comments on Facebook. Is my 38 plus P close enough to a 45? It's plus P. I'd count it. 
Of course, of course. <laughs> I think the point, though, that you were getting at with this article, and if you kind of go down, folks, if you're looking at the article, if you go down kind of the bottom, you have a lot of the key points uh, mm-hmm. or takeaways. And the number one thing you had listed here was carry a high-capacity weapon. And by that, you you really you, you clarified and said, ideally, eight rounds or more. Yep. Um, I, I would assume from, from my other articles that I've kind of written, uh, three-ish seems to be about the normal amount of shots per person. Um, and so eight gives you, you know, roughly you could probably do two to three people depending. But the other thing too, is let's be honest, this, these aren't cardboard USPSA targets. If you hear gunshots, you're going to run away. You know, if you're not the one being shot and you're in another room and you're, you know, doing whatever you're doing, you're probably not going to stick around. It's the same thing for SWAT officers and other people. You start to hear gunshots. You're not going to stay where you are. And if you have the ability to leave, you're probably going to leave. So, yeah. you know, eight's a good number. I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with anything less, but um, that's just yeah. kind of my own assessment there. Yeah, and that's definitely true. I mean, we see that in a lot of the videos that we watch. Uh, as soon as the first shots are fired, you know, a lot of times it might just be that, that the good guy is engaging one bad guy and everybody else is going, whew. Yeah. Um, but are there exceptions to that as well? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, there are. Uh, if it's true that we only need something that it, you know produces a gunshot and is going to scare everybody else away, then we would only carry twenty twos. You know, everywhere Maybe a we go. flare gun that would work pretty well too. <laughs> that might be pretty scary. I mean, it's really a, big. That's a big caliber. That'll yeah, stop. launch that at a guy and start his shirt on fire or something. Forty-five ACP guys, come on, get on that Ouch. flare gun stuff. Ouch. <laughs> well, where would you like to go next? I mean. We've been going at this a little little while here now, but what are some of the other key traits as you analyze these things that you think people really need to hear about or uh, takeaways that, that are associated with those? Um, you know, I think we've kind of talked about some of the, the highlighted stuff. I think the important thing to think about, um, though, well, two things. The first one is obviously you, you need to think about it as an ambush, right? They have started the ambush. You need to get out of the ambush. Um, so what you're really doing is problem solving and you have a pretty good tool to help you solve that problem. If you're carrying a gun, that doesn't mean that is the only tool you have. Right. And you know, that's, that's the one thing in it that I see, especially as a police officer, a lot of times the folks that do carry a gun feel the need to use it all the time for everything. Um, and obviously that gets into legality issues, but I just kind of want to emphasize to folks that, you know, because you have a gun and even if you're in a situation where you feel that it's, uh, you know, you're fine to use it, it doesn't mean you should because it's your life on the line or your loved ones or even the folks in there. And I like to highlight and, and I'm sure you've come across these kind of scenarios too, that let's just say you're like in McDonald's and they're robbing it and you decide to, you know, produce your handgun and you kill the two guys. Uh, but a couple of those shots missed or went through his abdomen and struck a fry clerk or fry cook in the back and, or a child that was hiding behind a, you know, something, a piece of furniture or something like that. So just because you did everything right and you did all the right training, you hit your target. doesn't mean bad things can't happen and you're still responsible for those bullets. Now, like legally, that's probably a different issue. You're going to be justified, but you know, let's just talk about, you know, personally, are you going to feel like you made the right decision if you shot a person and then end up making sure our little girl doesn't walk for the rest of her life. That's something you get to live with. So you need to, you need to think about those kind of things and realize that, you know, just because I can 
and I have the legal authority to do so, maybe yeah. I just let this happen. Or, you know, maybe I'm the best witness that I can be today. So those are decisions you have to make. Um, and then, you know, obviously this article is kind of a, like, a guide to help you make uh, your training a little, little closer. And I think the best way to do that kind of training, honestly, is force on force. You got to do live fire but you got to validate your tactics with force on force as you alluded to earlier. Cause it's, it's key. And it, if any, and I think almost everyone has that kind of uh, a moment when they go, Oh, all this stuff, not all this stuff, but some of the stuff I've done on the range, like mm, that doesn't work when bullets or, or pellets or paintball or whatever is going <laughs> both ways. That doesn't work very well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. Uh, I want to come back to the force on force thing. Cause I want to get some, some ideas from you on that. Um, First, but before that, there is one other thing that I that really did stand out to me. Uh, this is one that I didn't necessarily expect, um, especially the number that you came up with, because this is one that is a little bit more difficult to analyze, I think, especially where a lot of the stories I feature, especially on the podcast, they're just stories. They're, they're news reports. They don't have a lot of details. Uh, they don't always have videos attached to them. And that is shooting and moving. Mm-hmm. And you highlighted here that 73% of the scenarios, the good guy was either moving and shooting together or moving and then shooting from multiple positions. I thought this was quite telling mm-hmm. because, you know, I've heard some out there in, in our industry suggest that there's not really any value to practicing shooting while moving, that that's a poor, that that's a poor tactic that, I mean, the second approach is, Hey, move, get to a good place and then shoot or something, you know, move as quick as you can. Uh, that's mm-hmm. going to work out better for you. I'm not always convinced though, that in the heat of the moment, um, unless I guess you're super well-trained um, and, and unless this, the situation is perfect for that, for that type of tactic, I'm not always convinced that that's what I'm going to do, that I'm going to, you know, move quickly to a point of cover or to a, to a more advantageous position and then shoot, you know? Uh, So I'm, I I kind of inclined to think that a lot of cases people react and they, they're just going to react very fluidly to what's going on and, you know, before them. And either they're moving because they're trying to get out of this guy's line of attack or the guy's moving and they're trying to make sure he, you know, maybe they are being aware of their, their, uh, uh, environment beyond the, the, the attacker. And they're, they're trying to make sure he doesn't move, you know, over this way where there's a big glass facade on a building and a bunch of people inside, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? It is definitely a skill that you have to be able to do. Um, and I think, I think some of those trainers have, you know, have some conflicts because one very hard to t- train somebody to move and shoot effectively and two, there's some liability issues from a training standpoint to doing things and certain ranges just won't allow them to do it. So maybe I adjust my curriculum and things like that and, not, and nothing against them. They, you know, they're providing training to folks that need it and they're doing the best they can. But if you look at how these, um, you know, how these actually happen, it, it's just common sense. If someone's shooting at you, even, you know, make it like a, you know, you look at your kids playing outside and they're squirting each other with super soakers, you don't just stand there. You don't just stand, <laughs> pivot, draw, super soak the other kid. Like that doesn't happen. If something bad is happening to you where you are, you're going to move. Like you cannot overcome that human instinct. It's no different than like, it'd be like trying to train somebody to be like, well, when you put your hand on the stove and it's really hot, you got to pivot first and then you can take your hand off leading with your elbow. Like that doesn't make any sense. You're just going to rip your hand away from the thing that you don't like. 
It's the same thing with a gunfight. If you're, if the rounds are impacting or if you realize you're in a bad spot and you're in imminent danger, you're going to move from the spot. And whether it's to an object uh, or you're going to shoot while you're moving, both are about 50-50. So of the, of the scenarios where that happened, a lot of people kind of ran a few steps and then they were pulling their gun out while it happened and then they stopped to engage. That's very common. Or they were moving uh, kind of slowly as the guy you saw when he, the guy was reaching for his wall and he's kind of like batting his hands away and he's produced his gun. He's kind of moving very slowly forward while he does that. So that's, that's the same thing as well. Um, what we need to keep in mind is it's not moving and shooting like you would see at a three gun match or, you know, from an entry team uh, for a SWAT team. This, this video that you're playing right now, this is a police officer obviously on his dash cam. And this guy, um, you know, they get into a fight and he produces a weapon. He's moving around a lot. That's, that's going to be probably the highest uh, speed that you would see somebody in most of these videos moving around. I mean, he's really moving. Um, I mean, how quick was that that engagement over? I mean, that was fast. Yeah, that's probably like a three to four second engagement. Very quick from the time that he realized like, oh, I need to produce my handguns probably, you know, three seconds or less. Yeah. Um, there's a, I'm sure for you, especially as a, as a law enforcement officer, uh, much in the same way I looked at this video, there, there's a lot of things we could talk about as far as lessons we learned from this uh, with this uh, stop here that this officer was performing. But as far as the engagement itself, I mean, what do we see? I, I think he's just flat out reacting, right? Mm -hmm. All he knows is he is suddenly being assaulted and he is trying to get as much distance from this guy as he can to buy himself that time to, to go to his tool belt, to go to his gun. Yeah. And, and that thing, it, it's, you know, it's very obvious that like you can't train, you can't out train human instinct. And that's always going to be that way. When you see something that you recognize as dangerous, you're going to try to get away from it, which is the same reason why, you see people scatter when shots fire, where if you watch any helmet cams from, you know, folks that are downrange in Afghanistan, Iraq, or wherever, anytime they're ambushed, people scatter. Like, there's, it's it's pointless to try to fight that. That's just an instinct. It's going to happen. So, uh, the real thing, I think, impact training-wise is that you need, first, you need to be solid in the fundamentals. You need to know how to draw your weapon. You need to have a solid grip. You need to know how to shoot it at a self-defense pace you know, not, not bullseye shooting. Then once you've got a solid handle on those, you need to work on these kind of things like a one handed draw, one handed shooting, moving and shooting, moving to a position and shooting, which is really why I, I recommend folks do some competition shooting. I don't care what it is, IDPA, steel, multi-gun, whatever you want to do. Um, it's going to test all of those skills and you will get better because of it. It's not, you know, folks that say that, you know, oh, competition will get you killed. Well, I would like you to find me one case where that's happened. Find me one case. I can find you a million people that have been in gunfights that do competitions that said it was absolutely invaluable. But find me one case where some guy was like a grandmaster USPSA and he's like, oh, man, I I'm, I'm ran out of cover. You know what I mean? Like, find me one case and I'll believe it. But I'm just, I'm a data guy. Like, I'll believe it when I see it, not because you say so. Yeah. That's a really excellent point. Uh, I like how, how you put it that way. That's something I I'm thinking about all the time because we do see, I see those comments on Facebook like all the time, every day on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's going to get you killed. Mm -hmm. um, what I see is competitive shooters actually care enough to try to master that trade 
uh, of shooting and being effective at it. And uh, not all the skills translate, of course. We know that. We get that. Um, There's certain things that I do when I'm competing, by the way, that when I get done shooting a stage, I don't always try to immediately, you know, I don't, I don't immediately go right to, you know, remove the magazine, clear the weapon, you know, hammer down, you know, after the range off. Like, I, I actually will stop. Uh, and I do this partly for me to like, did I actually shoot all the targets I'm supposed to shoot? Yeah. And, you know, and it's kind of that mental thing where it's like, okay, did I get, every, did I get everybody? I'm actually thinking in my head sometimes like, did I get all the bad guys? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's kind of my way of, of trying to at least avoid some of those, I think real big and obvious training scars. Sure. Uh, uh, I don't know if others try that. I don't, maybe that's just a Riley yeah. thing, but no, actually, I've heard I've heard other folks say that that they kind of do that. Uh, I know actually, um, Mike Seeklander said I think on his last podcast where he does that. He learned that early on to kind of scan his targets, and it's what you're doing in the real world too. You're scanning to see if the the guy's still moving. Is he crawling towards a gun? Um, you know, do I need to stop shooting or re you know reengage or whatever? But I think the the thing I like to compare that to. Um, for competition shooting, it's just like going to the gym. I don't know about you, but you know, in any fight I've ever been in or any kind of issue I've had on duty, I've never had to, never come across a bar that I had to put on my back and I had to squat out in like the real world. But uh, I tell you what, like being stronger certainly helps me in my normal everyday tasks. It's the same thing with USPSA it's or IDPA or whatever you want to do. These things aren't representations of the real world. They are tests of key skills that will transfer over to that. So I think people are not realizing that. No, you know, you can't just uh, only do the thing you want to do in training and hope to get better. You have to practice the smaller skills that are, you know, key to success, which is, you know, kind of what this article is about is identifying what skills you need to practice so you're not wasting your time doing stuff that you see people do on YouTube or whatever. You know, that was another really great thing I appreciate about your website is clearly you have a, a big focus on fitness, um, a lot of CrossFit, uh, tons of great articles about, you know, resources for, for fitness, uh, tips and tricks, uh, where, to, where to focus on spending your time. I mean, a lot of fitness, self-defense oriented stuff. I mean, just a lot of good info, I think, for folks that are really serious about self-defense out there. So once again, as a plug for Jake, tier3tactical.com, you got to go check it out. Uh, Put this in your bookmark list of sites. Um, I'm finding myself coming back here on a daily basis now and seeing, you know, Jake, you got to put out more content, man. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm I'm writing an ebook right now for folks that are coaching CrossFitters and that's killing all of my free time. But yeah, generally I like to put out one when I'm not doing this. I like to do like one article a week. Um, but the fitness, like I said, I, th- that's key. And, and honestly, like I know CrossFitters have the reputation of like, you know, like how do you know the guys at CrossFitter, like he'll tell you within the first two minutes or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I get that. I've been doing it long enough. I, I think it's funny and it is true. Um, but I don't really care if you do CrossFit. To me, fitness is fitness. Um, and that's kind of what the, the website's trying to promote. Like I like CrossFit. I think it works, um, for a lot of people, but honestly, if you just, I think, I think if I had to pick one thing, uh, for most concealed carry folks, and I think you'll, you'll probably agree with me, you know, you go to a range, you go to a competition shoot, folks are out of shape. You know what I mean? And it's hard to fight, uh, if you're out of shape, um, you know, if you don't believe me, go put on some boxing gloves and some headgear and just 
just wrestle around with somebody. I mean, I'll probably don't do that. Actually, you'll probably pull something, but like <laughs> that is going to like, really, you'll find out like how hard it is. Like I CrossFit a lot and I'm pretty good at it. And anytime I, you know, do some, some training like that, I'm still gassed. And if you spend no time on your fitness and all your time at the range, it's not going to work out well. And I tell you, there's also a big deterrent factor. Um, there's some really interesting research. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, Northwestern maybe did it, but they basically, what they did is they took um, some, the, they took a digital composite for MMA fighters and they said, can you predict a winner of these matches by looking at the guy's face? And so they kind of, you know, do all that thing where they measure the points, the eyes and the bone structure. And they took all the winners and they averaged that together and they picked a, like a medium skin tone. So you can't tell it's just like light Brown kind of, they go, here's the winner face. Here's the loser face. Winter face is like almost always thicker. Their necks wider, cheeks are wider. Uh, like their eye ridges are always a little bit bigger. And they're pointing out. And then so they just gave this to like their participants and go pick the winner of this. They like almost always pick the guys who won because they have like basically a little bit the uh, more coarse and like masculine features or whatever. But the point is, is like anybody can tell any human can look at somebody and go mm, probably shouldn't mess with that guy <laughs> and you know if the guy's like getting out and he's like getting onto his hover round and like rolling into the range like that that doesn't cross your mind if you're a bad guy i mean these people are not good people and that's the other thing i like to point out and one of the other ones i uh, articles i wrote about um the leoka uh status for people that actually did uh kill police officers they interview these subjects and you, you get a taste like their lives are not your lives 100% different like they are not thinking about the stuff that you think about they're thinking about how am I going to get the thing I want and how am I going to get away with it and they don't care how that happens that's going to happen they're going to use any amount of violence to do that and if you're presenting a soft target you know you're like it's just not going to go well for you. So I always like to say like the best the best thing you can do for as a concealed carrier is like get a gym membership and then go to a range mm. Excellent advice. I appreciate the once again the way you put that. So I'm going to shift gears, and as we kind of get close close to wrapping this up, <clears throat> I do want to make sure I mention these are the eleven the 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 eleven tips that you know that you say at the top of the article. This is you know what you're going to get away from this uh, or take away from this. And number one is to carry a high capacity weapon, ideally eight rounds or above. Number two, be able to access your gun with one hand. Number three, keep your head on a swivel, checking your six, the most dangerous area. And yeah, we didn't talk about that specifically, but read the article, look at some of the videos, and and that is that that's that's a that's a dangerous place when they come from directly behind you. Number four, delay your draw. Number five, closely related, obscure your draw. Wait for the right opportunity and obscure it when uh, as much as you can. Number six, do not engage immediately unless you must. Seven, practice pivoting and, and engaging threats. Eight, practice gun grappling and one-handed engagement within three feet. Nine, shoot from cover if available. Ten, practice shooting and moving at man-sized targets at three to five yards. And number 11, and this is a perfect segue to where I'd like to go next and kind of wrap it up for today, validate all live training with force-on-force training. We've touched on that some. Now, we actually have a, a viewer that's commented and saying, uh, uh, this, is, this is Cindy. I did some practicing of hand-to-hand -hand this weekend, my first time. Congrats to you, Cindy. That being said, where can I go for good training? And she actually asked specifically in, U in Utah County. Cindy, I'll send you a DM. Unless uh, uh, 
uh, Jake has a, you know, knows, happens to know somebody in Utah County in Utah. Uh, but no, I can, I'll let I can, you handle that one. I'm not familiar <laughs> with Utah County. <laughs> but I think I could probably help you out, Cindy. Um, but work, work, where can you get some good training, Jake? I mean, specifically, it's rather challenging. This is one thing that we struggle with as a training company uh, all the time, too, is just it, it's, it's expensive. It's difficult to set up at times, finding the appropriate places to do things like force on force. Um, I mean, we, we have done that. We, we're trying to do more of that. In fact, we'd like to bring force on force to more of the masses. Mm. It's a big goal that I have my, myself for our business. What, what are your thoughts and recommendations as far as getting good training uh, in, in all aspects, but especially where some of these things might be a little bit more difficult for some people, i.e. the force on force and or shooting and moving? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, there's a couple, you know, there's a couple options that are available. One, um, I really like, uh, like Laserlight makes uh, training rounds that you can put in any normal gun. So it's just a cartridge that fits into the chamber. And then when you pull the trigger, kind of emits a little laser. So showing you where you would have hit. I think that's good for force on force training. Um, because a lot of times people go, well, there's, there's no pain aspect of that. Yes, there's no pain aspect, but you also shouldn't be training to you know, where, you know, any one hit and you're giving up. That's something that I really had to like, it was a huge training scar for, um, I had a weapons platoon, um, prior to leaving uh, my time in the Marine Corps and all of our force on force trains, the same kind of thing, you know, keep it fair guys. If you get hit, you're out. I was like, no, that's not how that works. If you get hit, you have to keep fighting. Like you're not out Mm -hmm. of the fight and it's the same way for force on force. So you don't necessarily have to use airsoft. I think airsoft is probably the, the, the best, uh, training tool. It's not super expensive and it's not super painful like some of the Sims and Sesums rounds are. So if you carry a Glock or, uh, you know, a pretty popular model, there's almost always going to be somebody who makes a, a pretty accurate replica in Airsoft. That might be like 150 bucks, but it depends on how much you, you want to train. So your laser light round is going to be like 40 bucks or something like that. That's good. It's also a good safety device because if you put that in your gun, it's in the chamber. There's no way a round can be loaded. So that's a good, uh, safe way of training. And you can do that same kind of thing. I recommend you you just do the same kind of thing you might do at the gym. You get a training partner and you work on a couple things. You can run through some of these scenarios, like just like you did with um, Jacob. You know, go to an area where you got some space and maybe kind of reenact something you saw on YouTube or a defensive gun use or something like that. Or, and, you know, honestly, I I would imagine most folks probably have some of these questions, you know, hey, should I draw on a drawn gun? Well, let's go find out. You know, if you've got some airsoft guns, you'll find out real quickly that you get shot really fast before you even produce the gun. Um, So that kind of stuff, those are all kind of DIY um, resources you can use. There are companies, I know one, my department is used and I know they, they train worldwide. It's called Strategos. They will do a lot of low light training, which I think is they've got a great method for that. And then they also do force on force, which, um, which is invaluable. And in fact, I know force science has done some research that shows if any kind of force on force training you do is much more likely to uh, ensure that you retain those skills. So if you practice just some regular live fire shooting, you're going to, those are going to decay in a few weeks. Force on force decays at like a much slower rate. So if you get some good training from a reputable company, um, you know, you're more likely to retain that kind of stuff. So yeah, it may be a little more expensive, but if you did that once a year, maybe even twice a year, you should probably be okay in terms of that kind of thing. But if you feel like you want to get more um, training, I'd probably go 
with that laser training round or maybe some airsoft pistols. Yeah. I just posted in the show notes a link to uh, one of the airsoft pistols I like. I think it's reasonably priced. Uh, it's uh, made by KWA. It's basically a Glock 19 copy. Um, so if it's, if it's my, my Glock 19 holsters, comes with a spare mag. Uh, I like that too because it's an airsoft gun. You know, blowback action, you know, yep. charge it with gas, put some BBs in it. Uh, you got a spare mag if you want to do a, you know, practice some sort of mag exchange or whatever. But most importantly, it just, it fits holsters I have. I'm able to train with it, use it, and also have fun with it. And by the way, if you can make training fun some, from time to time, I mean, I have yeah. a little airsoft target right here in my office that I'll, I'll grab my little airsoft gun from time to time and just shoot at it. You know, it's just another opportunity for some, some dry practice. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of that. It definitely should be fun. If, it, if it's feeling like work, you're not going to stick with it very long. You got to find ways to make it interesting and entertaining. Yeah. Awesome. This has been great, and I, I hope it's been valuable for our viewers and listeners. Uh, Jake, I really appreciate your time today, man. Yeah, it was great coming on. It was uh, awesome speaking to your listeners, and I hope they uh, they get some some good knowledge from it. Absolutely. So be sure to go and check out Jake Jackson's website, tier3tactical.com. That is spelled out T-I-E-R-T-H-R-E-E, tactical.com. Uh, give him some love there. Like his, uh, uh, you got a Facebook page? Yeah, I got a Facebook page. I'm not super active on there. I actually do more on um, Instagram lately. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I do like all the articles when they come out are posted on there. And if I do have some announcements, um, yeah, like when I, finish the ebook in a couple of weeks. I'll post a link on there and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's a good place. Follow that page. Same thing, tier three tactical on Facebook and just Jake Jackson on Instagram or whatever. And then, you know, you can get all the latest and greatest sent to you. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I'm excited about your ebook. Uh, be sure to keep me posted. Yeah, we'll like do. an extra set of eyes uh, looking it over or whatever. I'd be happy to do that. It'd be you heard that, guys. He volunteered to be my editor. So <laughs> if he doesn't, if there's like any misspellings, it's Riley's fault, and you can email him. You can email him if there's misspellings. The good news is I'm an I'm 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 a really good speller. So says my fifth grade spelling bee trophy. <laughs> well, you're better than me. I'm the worst speller there is. So. <laughs> Right on, man. Uh, once again, appreciate you. So just to wrap it up here, folks, uh, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com. Also, Pig Lube. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash pig lube. Check that out. Appreciate your support of our sponsors. And then the honorary mention for Phoenix Weaponry based in Longmont, Colorado. Uh, you can see them at SHOT Show. They've got several of their, their guns. Beautiful, beautiful ARs. Uh, I think Burris Optics, Hex Mag, uh, I know Aaron over there at uh, Phoenix Weaponry told me a couple others they're going to be at. Uh, check them out. Also, you can check us out. Uh, Jacob and I and others from our team will be at SHOT Show. We'll be recording on site from SHOT Show uh, several uh, interviews or episodes from the show. We're going to be at Safari Land at 4.30, from 4.30 to 5.30 on Tuesday. You can come check us out there. Say hello. Uh, we'll be at Springfield Armory recording uh, in their booth, on, on their stage, in fact, from 1 to 5 p.m. on Wednesday. Thursday, we'll be at XS Sites, still working on confirming the time, but I believe it's going to be 12 to 2 p.m. And Friday, we just got the confirmation this morning. They're, they're all geared up, ready to go. We're going to be interviewing Shane Coley. And we're going to be at the Glock booth on Friday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the show. So come say hello. Stop by. If you're able to attend SHOT Show, we'd love to, to see you. 
Uh, we've got some some swag to give away, uh, some stickers and different things. So come say hello. We'd love to see you there. We're going to be covering the show all week long. We're actually, our, our week starts on Sunday at the Sig Sauer Premier Media Day, followed by Industry Day at the Range uh, Monday, and then the rest of the week at the show. We'll be checking out all the newest, greatest, latest, awesomest stuff and products and guns. And so we look forward to uh, uh, seeing all of you there or at least producing uh, some great video and podcast content for you to consume. So don't miss it. We look forward to it. It's going to be a long, tiring week. I'm not sure what that following week is going to be like, <laughs> but I'm going to need some recovery time. That's for sure. So with that, it's time to to wrap it up and let you all go. Once again, Jake, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, great talking to you. We'd love to have you again if you're open to that idea. For um, sure. Talk about some of the other great insights. So with that, folks, uh, we'll let you all go. Uh, just a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.